Welcome to Park City Church. You're listening to our weekly message, where we hope you'll be inspired and encouraged to know and follow Jesus and welcome and serve others. Thank you for tuning in. We find ourselves in, in this reading in Matthew in a really tension field, uh, field, tension field. My Georgia just came out right there. Uh, in, in a tension filled moment uh, where Jesus is, con- is, is challenging religious leaders and religious thinking. Um, you know, in, in Matthew's gospel, prior to this moment, pressure has been building. The way Matthew tells the story uh, and, and the other gospels, but in Matthew, the, the pressure is, is building. There is tension, just kind of growing tension in his telling of the story between Jesus and, and religious leaders. And we've, if you would have started at the beginning, you'd have seen over and over again the religious leaders uh, attempting to trap him, right, to, to entrap him, and in a move to, to, to put a stop to his movement, to what he's teaching, to what he's doing, and all sorts of trickery and deceit, and, and uh, uh, a, lot, a lot of that at work already in, in Matthew's gospel. And, uh, and Jesus, in response, has hit them with some parables that have been really not so subtle, really just uh, clever storytelling, uh, in, uh, but really uh, clear to them and to others listening, man, he's, ta- he's exposing uh, the religious leaders. And uh, just, again, growing, growing tension as we move uh, closer and closer to the cross. And in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23, we're really close. Tension is thick. Uh, we, we are getting uh, really close to the cross. And, and really, it's almost like what we see here is, uh, if you've ever had like, anyone been a part of like a family conversation, like, a, like we got to call a family meeting. I don't know if that was a part of your experience growing up or you as a family, right? Uh, I, I think of like, this feels, this this feels like a kitchen table kind of conversation. Uh, Jess and I, you know, uh, maybe this has been your experience. Like uh, during COVID, lots of kitchen table types of conversations, right? You're stuck together maybe more than you would be and you're wrestling through tensions and trying to figure out how to live together peaceably. And uh, believe it or not, sometimes that's hard for us. I know uh, that might be hard for you to believe, but uh, you know, that, but kind of this moments around the kitchen table where we have like a fraught and hard, hard conversations. Now, generally uh, about, you know, how Jess isn't living up, up, up to expectations and I'm doing everything well, but uh, occasionally, occasionally we, we, we stray from that. But uh, most recently, that was a joke, but most recently we, we were like, we, we planned a time, we're going to sit down after the girls would go to sleep to have a conversation around the table. An important one, like, what are we going to do with our kids when school starts? You know, there was a deadline, we have to sign up, Shawnee Mission School District, you have to choose, you have a couple of options, and, and we're like, we set aside time, we're going to have a family meeting, we sat down and, and sat down to talk about it and just looked at each other for like 30 minutes. Like, we, I, I don't know what to say, right? Like, we don't know what, what to do. But, but that space in our lives where you have, you kind of, you have that space for like hard conversations. And then sometimes it's not always, uh, you know, it's spouses, like those, those moments come in all sorts of contexts and settings, but that, that space where there's where like, oh, this is where like the family business is, is getting taken care of. And, and it feels a little bit like the harshness of Jesus's language here. Uh, it, it feels, it feels kind of like that. Like, like, like he's, he's just pulling everyone up around the kitchen table. We're, we're, we're just going to be really direct here. We need to have a hard conversation. And uh, it, it's an interesting, I don't want to dig too much into it, but 
I do think there are some interesting parallels to where Jesus lands here at the end, right? Which is service, to lay your life down. If you want to be exalted, you will be humbled. That move to loving others uh, comes in response to the religiosity and the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. There's some parallels to, to, to that in other gospels. I, again, I thought uh, even in uh, the, so the context here, just prior to this, there's been a conversation about what are the greatest commandments? It's love God and love others. And out of that has spilled this, this heart to heart over the religious behavior of the religious leaders. And it's similarly, like in other gospels, Luke, for example, there's a conversation. What's it mean to love your neighbor? And religious leaders trying to kind of, uh, a religious scholar, like, well, what does it really mean? Who is really my neighbor? And again, in response, Jesus just kind of yanks the rug out and tells the story of the good Samaritan. But in both cases, interestingly, he's, he's, uh, pushing against uh, religious leaders and thinking. And, and again, so here, here we find Jesus sitting around a kitchen table, uh, a, a metaphorical kitchen table, to just give it to these guys, right? I mean, his sharpest words here, right? It's, it's like family. His sharpest words are reserved for those closest to him. They're, they're the people in his camp, right? These, these, this is, these are his roots. This is his religious history. And, and here he finds himself stepping into a role that we've seen over and over again in the history of God's people. The, the churchy word we use for that is prophet. They stand up and, and speak uh, truth, sometimes difficult truth, often to God's people, but also to others. Specifically, prophets often would step up and speak to those responsible for leading God's people. And Jesus is channeling those voices from, from uh, much earlier in his history. Voices like Jeremiah, who said, the leaders of my people are sure to be judged. They were supposed to watch over my people like shepherds watch over sheep, but they're causing my people to be destroyed and scattered. I'm realizing now the irony of reading these verses as a pastor and a shepherd, and that's uh, a little challenging, right? But Jesus picks up also the words of Ezekiel. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who've been feeding themselves should not the shepherds feed the flock? And so here again, Jesus is he's stepping into a, a role and a history of voices that, that are not unfamiliar, uh, even in his religious context. And he's, he's, he's uh, addressing those, again, uh, who are pulled up around the kitchen table, leveling his own indictment against religious leaders. Uh, everything they do, he says, everything they do is for men to see. Everything they do is for people to see. And, and I got to think, right? I got to think as we uh, sit with passages like this, my hunch is we like these kinds of passages, right? This, this, this feels good. Nobody likes a hypocrite, right? And uh, you've probably heard it. You've probably thought it. It's probably uh, been a part of your thinking when you step into and out of church. Like, sometimes it's hard because nobody likes a hypocrite, right? And we're, we're right there. I think we enjoy these kinds of scenes. Nobody likes religious smug, right? Nobody likes anyone enamored with his own sense of like self-importance or self-righteousness. We, 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 we don't, we, we don't like that. We hear Jesus say, everything they do is for people to see. And we say, yes, amen. Give it to them, right? This is good. Give it to them. Uh, let them have it, Jesus. There's an interesting detail in this passage that I think is worth noting. Uh, that the funny thing about this incident is, is, 
uh, and Jesus will speak directly to the religious leaders. But in this moment, he pulls, he pulls the crowd and the disciples. Like he, Matthew tells us specifically, he is speaking, in this case, not to the religious leaders, but, but to the crowd and to his disciples. That, he, that he, he's addressed this passage uh, to others. And again, he'll speak directly to them. Woe to you, he'll say. Right? He, will, he will go after them. But in this moment, he speaks to the crowd, to the disciples, and he wants to teach them. In a sense, it's, it's like a warning. So if, if we were sort of in this story, this, this would be us as maybe you're a disciple of Jesus and following him. Maybe you're just a part of the crowd, just kind of checking it out. Oh, wherever we might find ourselves in this story, as we'll see later, maybe the religious uh, leaders, but, but probably in this, in this uh, space of the crowd and the disciples. And it's though Jesus in this moment, as though he, he wants to teach them, saying to them, don't be like the religious leaders. Why? Why? Why speak to them in this way? Why say this to them? I think, I think as we sit with the passage, it's because he knows that they share, uh, and we, the same propensity for self-importance. That that same streak that has led the religious leaders down this path that he uh, so vividly articulates here uh, acknowledges this is in you. This is in us. And so uh, he, he says to them, right, everything they do is for, for people to see. This is the indictment. But what's he driving at here, right? What's, what's, what's he calling uh, their attention to, the crowds and the disciples? That at the heart of all of that sort of pharisaical righteousness, much of it good, I mean, he says here, right, observe what they tell you to do. There is an acknowledgement that, that what they're saying is good, uh, but that behind some of that, again, is, is again, the, the, the word, the gnarly word, uh, gnarly as in, you know, difficult and unpleasant to hold would be pride. That there is, there is behind so much of this a, a selfishness. And that streak, he says, that pull uh, is present in your life as well. So be aware. No, beware. Uh, don't be like the religious leaders, that pull towards self-centeredness, that motivation to, to, uh, to be the center, to, to say, pay attention to me, to feel superior, to, to be enough. We use all kinds of language to talk about it, but, but he's saying that pull is in your heart and life as well. I, I, uh, we've been on a real big Charlie Brown kick in my house lately, which we had been there before. We kind of circled back. And I have a comic strip, actually, uh, one uh, that I wanted to share with us this morning. And, and you can read it here. One thing that makes dogs superior is our ability to raise our ears like this, right? Another thing that makes dogs superior is, wait, I was going to tell you about our natural humility, right? Because it was, it's so good, right? It's so funny. Uh, an illustration, I think, uh, right, of uh, humor, right? Charlie Brown. But like, this is great. What's this got to do with Pharisees and righteousness and my own pull towards self-importance? Well, uh, interestingly, uh, there's a, a writer, a scholar, who has been reflecting on uh, uh, Charlie Brown and Charles Schultz. And he made some observations. He's actually dedicated, like, a thread, a, a website, a feed uh, to, this, to this idea. And we're going to come back to that comic in just a minute. But, uh, but he says that, you know, Charles Schultz, in writing Charlie Brown, which you know this if you're familiar with it, he addresses really... Um, really kind of difficult subjects. 
And, and some of that, like the somber subject matter, gets, gets lost in sort of the commercialization, right? Because he's on a greeting card or on a gift bag, uh, because of the joke at the end of the comic strip, it, it, it's this skillful masking of a really uh, uh, much more kind of somber or serious matter. Uh, he says, in fact, actually, that the concluding punchline, right, distances readers emotionally from the misery that precedes it. So often as you're reading Charlie Brown, like here, uh, this is kind of telling a story, but he kind of positions you to experience it and then hits, you with a, hits, you, hits us with a punchline so that maybe we don't feel the sting of, of really what uh, he is exposing so vividly that actually, again, this uh, critique of uh, Charlie Brown says the jokes turn us from kind of co-sufferers uh, into wise guys. Now we're, we're kind of laughing along like, ah, ha, ha, right? Uh, and and, and he, he suggests that Schultz, Charles Schultz was well aware of it. I mean, he knew this, uh, that the stuff of life was sometimes difficult. Difficult to, to admit even about ourselves. And that humor uh, kind of helped us admit it. Uh, but but so, so, so all that to say, so what this guy has done is he's taken all these like uh, comic strips and he's uh, sort of posted them and removed the last removed the last photo. So when you do that, when you take the gag away, you kind of see this dismal view of like, life is hard, right? And, and this is truth. And I thought, man, what if, if we did that here? If you got rid of the last uh, image and you stopped with, and another thing that makes dogs superior. What we're left with, I think, is the gospel truth, right? What we're left with is the dark reality of life that we all want to be superior, we, there is in us a need to feel and be superior, to draw lines, to create space, and, and we use all sorts of criteria to do it. And in our reading this morning, the religious leaders had their own sets of criteria, but, but what this exposes, if we remove that last graphic, is that there is in us a need, uh, a part of our nature that needs to, to feel superior, to push ourselves ahead at the expense of, of others. I, I think, again, man, if you've had kids, you know this, right? Little kids. Uh, I think of all the parents that have been home with, like, toddler-age children. My kids are older. It's been a little easier. Uh, and you're stuck. You're kind of trapped at home over these last six months. Uh, this, the human streak to need to be the center of attention is probably really apparent to you uh, and overwhelmingly uh, tiresome. Uh, but, but here's what I think. Like, we, we think, well, that's for toddlers. But I think, you know, we, we just kind of graduate to more sophisticated ways of needing to be the center, of, of needing to, to feel like we matter, that, that, we, uh, that we, we need uh, attention. More sophisticated status symbols and ways of jockeying for position, of showing uh, that, that we measure up or that we're enough or that we're not like or that those over there. or like, We get really, I think, nuanced and sophisticated. Uh, it just takes, it gets a, a little more adult in its uh, veneer. But at the heart of it is the same pull and tendency that Jesus addresses here. Everything we do is for people to see. Sometimes it's virtual, right? Everything we do is for how people will experience us virtually uh, or digitally. But, but there, is, there is in us this pull. And, and here's what I think. You might be listening and be like, well, I mean, this isn't me, right? I don't feel superior. I'm not like arrogant. Uh, but, but, and maybe that's true. Maybe, maybe you're not. Uh, but, but here's what I, I want to suggest that, um, that pull towards superiority, it also, it also grows out of insecurity. 
It's, the source might be a little bit different, but it can, uh, but it's that same move that even out of our insecurity, there, there grows a need to just show and prove that we're enough, that we measure up maybe in a way that others don't. And what can happen in the midst of all that, in the midst of that pull, as Jesus exposes here, is hypocrisy. And Jesus nails the religious leaders on it, right? I mean, he calls them out really vividly here, really directly. Uh, don't, uh, he says, you, you know, listen to what they're saying, but don't do what, don't do what they're doing. They, they don't help those. Uh, so they're burdening all these people with religious rules, but then they're not actively helping them. Uh, he says that they uh, don't, don't engage in that, right? Don't, don't, uh, it gets really specific. They, he says, are living for attention. Their status before the eyes of others is the bottom line. We might use words like pride or enoughness or self-centeredness or insecurity uh, that, that might flow from a number of places in our hearts and lives. But Jesus has that pull is there. And so he gives a warning. Don't be like these guys. It's not the first time Jesus had to address this in his disciples, right? Uh, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder uh, earlier have been jockeying for position. Man, give us the good seats, right? Give us the good seats. This is my pew, right? Give, give us well, the pews. That's uh, for the, you were familiar. We have a pew in the back for maybe a generation of people that are unfamiliar. But um, right that the sons of thunder jockeying for position. And Jesus says, well, that's great. I'm happy for you. But it doesn't work that way. Life around me doesn't work that way. Status and position get turned on their, on their heads. But that same pull towards pride, even insecurity, Jesus warns, lives in us. And he invites us to acknowledge it, all of us, all of us, invites us to acknowledge it, to acknowledge this tendency. And as Jesus addresses this underlying issue with the religious leaders, again, he, he calls attention to the same tendency in our lives. The status symbol may be different for you and for me, but the pool is the same. As he does, right, as he does over and over again, he just, he flips it. He turns the tables on him, pulls the rug out from under him. What other cliche could we use? You fill in the blank. But Jesus does it here. He's like, this is how the world works. You have to, you have to earn your status. You have to show your worth. You have to prove your merit. You have to like, you have to get ahead, whatever the expense. And, uh, and, and you uh, push yourself forward. Jesus says, those who will center their life on me, this is not how it will work. This is not the, the, the way of discipleship. He says, if you know and follow me, your life will look differently. Uh, and he gets really specific here again. Don't, don't be called rabbi. So don't aspire to that position because you have only one master. Your life is oriented around me. Don't call each other father because you have only one father, as we'll sing in just a moment. The Lord's Prayer bringing us back to, well, no, our lives are oriented around uh, one don't be called teacher because you have only one teacher, the Christ, he says in this passage, me. That when you know and follow me, it, 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 it just, all of the sort of Jenga building, sort of structures of symbol and status and worth, all that comes down and is now redefined around your relationship to me. Cuts to the heart of all of our maneuvering and struggling and striving. It says, man, when you follow me, all that gets turned upside down. The greatest among you will be your servant. Here we bump into that little word, serve. The greatest among you will be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. 
Again, this is a theme of Jesus's life that we've seen uh, previously, but it's a theme over and over again of Jesus reversing things, turning the table, taking sort of status-driven approaches to life and worth and merit and religion, all, all of that, and just turning it on its head. The way of Christ, he says, to follow me is to to turn all of that upside down. And it's been all over the pages of his story. John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist announced that mountains would be brought low and valleys would be leveled. That, that all the things uh, uh, that, that we had used kind of defined status and simple, uh, there, there will be this, this, this leveling uh, around the person of Christ. Mary, at, at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, when she learns of Jesus and she's processing that she's about to give birth, she doesn't know all that that means, but she sings of the humbling of princes and the exaltation of the lowly. Right, right from the beginning, oh, Jesus is going to change our definitions of status. And Jesus, right at the beginning of his ministry, quoting Isaiah, that I'm here to announce God's kingdom, that blind will see and captives released, a reversal. Like all, all, the, all the people that were on the fringe before, like Jesus turning all of that on its head, turning all of that around. In fact, just a few chapters before this, Jesus will say very plainly, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, so now he's moved away from religious leaders and he's going to the world, sort of culturally, the people in charge in his time, they, the, those people lord their authority over, over them. Those in high positions use their authority over them. But it must not be this way among you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you, and here we are again, must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your servant. And here's the, here's the clincher. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And here Jesus ties all of this, this call to serve, to, to, to give up sort of grasping and reaching and trying to show and prove and be more. You got to let all that go, all of that go, all of that superiority, all of that religious superiority and otherwise, right? All of that, he says, gets wrapped up in the truth of the gospel, which is very simply that we all need ransoming. We all, we all need ransoming, and we never outgrow that need for ransoming, that we all need ransoming. And Jesus and his work on the cross is that ransom, right? is that response. So uh, I, I, uh, I, I, I take this truth, right? If we sit with this and we, we think about it for a moment, all right? So uh, here Jesus exposing our pull to kind of show our religious enoughness, and sometimes it's religious expression, sometimes it's other things entirely, uh, but what are the implications of saying, oh, I'm going to know and follow Jesus, and, and allow him to upend my definitions of what's important and valuable and, and uh, significant and superior, right? Well, what, are the, what are the implications of that? What Jesus is saying here is like, look, uh, when you choose to follow me, you give up sort of playing life by, by the old rules. And your life now is defined and oriented around me. And, and so what does that mean for status and recognition and position and esteem? I, 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 I'm literally like asking the question for you to consider what would this look like in marriage, right? What, what would this look like in a, in a relationship uh, for it to be more about my service to you than, than uh, the satisfaction I find from my relationship with you? Like what, what, what would it look like for my life uh, redefined now around Jesus to find its expression in my marriage? Or what would it look like in my relationship to friends and neighbors, 
uh, in the neighborhood in which I am and live? Like, what, what would it mean for my understanding of status and symbol and worth to now be reshaped around service because I have been rants, ransomed? That I recognize my need, that there is uh, this admission in me that I, I am caught up in, in, in the world's games of what is significant and important. But now that's been changed. Now I hear the invitation of Jesus to, to live in service out of what, uh, what, what he has done for me. What, what does it mean for, again, relationships or friendships or my sense of morality and religiousness? What, what does it mean? I think, I think again, uh, you're a creative bunch, but you could step into maybe teasing out what it might look like uh, to live lives centered on knowing and following Jesus and what that might mean and how we serve uh, others. But to help us, right? So, so here's, here's the move, right? Jesus is saying a life kind of, uh, he's inviting us to recognize we need ransoming, that our lives cannot be rooted in our own righteousness. And that when we, when we step into that, the, the, the word for that is grace, uh, we step into his righteousness, we are then free to see others differently and to serve them. So uh, and you, you uh, can tease out the implications of that in your life, but by way of application, I want to help. I want to bring us back to Charlie Brown. I have another picture here. Uh, it's a classic image, right? So this is a classic sort of Charlie Brown image. We, again, have been watching a little bit of Charlie Brown uh, in my home. And uh, we just watched, this is from the, uh, I think, a most recent sort of remake of a movie. That was a lot of fun. But there was a scene in this movie, I, I, I either, I don't know if it's the stress of, of, of the world at the moment, but I, I felt myself like, I got emotional as we were watching it with the girls. We kind of reached the end of the movie. There's this kind of climactic moment. And I'm um, like quietly sort of like hiding my tears. I'm like, it's Charlie Brown, Matt. Get it together, right? But, uh, but this was the scene that uh, I thought might, might help you and me as we think about Jesus' call to serve others, to give up trying to be something and trying to show our worth and instead to lay our lives down and serve, to be humble. Um, It comes at the end of the movie. This again is just a classic image, but at the end of the movie, typical of Charlie Brown's sort of string of failures, he finds himself face to face with the little redheaded girl, which if you're familiar with Charlie Brown, that will mean something to you. If not, you should go check it out. Um, But uh, so he finds himself finally face to face with her, who for reasons that Charlie Brown cannot understand or envision. Uh, she has chosen him for her summer pen pal. And he finally finds his way back to her and he's face to face with her and the question on his mind that he has to know the answer to, he asks her, he says, why me? I have to know, why me? And she looks at him and she says, because I've seen the type of person you are. And his response to that is an insecure, wishy-washy failure. And she looks at him and says, that's not what you are at all. I like the compassion you showed for your sister at the talent show and the honesty you had at the assembly. Again, all moments that mean nothing to you if you haven't seen the story, but moments that that by the world's standards looked like failure. And as she lists them off, she reaches the conclusion, so when I look at you, I I don't see failure at all. Here's what I love about that interaction. I love it for all kinds of reasons, but the first one is, is that question, why me. It's a question I think that, that is at the heart of the gospel that every, everyone asks for various reasons, but we, 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 we don't want to ask, but I think we have to ask the gospel uh, 
pulls us all into this question, why me? And for many of us, and maybe this is too much self-exposure, maybe the, the movie uh, moved me because it exposed my insecurity. Charlie Brown's answer, because I'm an insecure, wishy-washy failure, right? Maybe, maybe that says more about uh, what I was processing emotionally at the moment than anything else. But, but maybe that's not you. Here's why I think, like, why me is necessary it's necessary if, if you live there in your insecurity, but it's also necessary if we live in the kind of self-importance of, of our own righteousness. Because the gospel says neither of those things matter. Your insecurities and failures, the string of, 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 of downward turns in your life, they do not disqualify you. Uh, neither do all of the righteous accomplishments of your life qualify you to be at this table. Jesus says to all of us in response to this question, why me? Well, it's not because you're good. It's not because you're moral. It's not because you've blown it. It's none of those things. It's because I have come as a ransom for many and we all need ransoming. And that I think is is the gospel. why I I love this moment. So wherever you are uh, in that conversation, uh, Jesus, in our reading this morning, pulls you into to this question, why me? An admission that we all need ransoming. But I love, I, I love it. Uh, not just because it tells us that it's not about you, right? It's not about you or me. It's about him and his work for us. Uh, I love that image, but, but I, I like it for another reason, because I think her response to Charlie Brown uh, gives us a beautiful picture of a ransomed life. That, that her answer to him in that moment, uh, I think, uh, reminds us that, 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 uh, that the priorities of a ransomed life aren't anything like what the world celebrates. And I know, particularly in our culture and our time, it's really hard to peel those things apart. I know, uh, probably as cultures and times gone by, like this is always the struggle, but the gospel sort of appeals back the truth that a ransom life doesn't share any of the priorities that the world celebrates. That the things that she lists in Charlie Brown, uh, these are things uh, you'd never do this stuff for people to see because no one would ever bother looking. (laughs) Compassion and self-sacrifice and service, these are not the things that get honored and glorified and excelled and pushed to the top. And yet Jesus says that a life oriented around me a life ransom uh, of its own brokenness in its insecurity and in its self-righteousness. Like the Pharisees, all of those lives need ransoming. And when they're ransomed in me, he says, you find grace and freedom to love and serve. So maybe, right, I think this has implications again for all kinds of spaces in our lives. But maybe you think, Maybe you think all you bring to that relationship, to that work environment, uh, to this place, um, maybe you think all you bring into these places is insecurity, wishy-washy failure, or maybe you think you bring a pretty stellar list of righteousness, and this is why I deserve a seat here. The gospel says, nope, all you bring to this moment All any of us ever bring to this moment is a life in need of ransoming. And a life ransomed by God's grace, he says, is a life free to love and serve others. A life free from the the pull to prove our worth and our status and our significance. Free to serve. Thank you for listening to the Park City Church Podcast. To learn more about our church and or to find ways to get involved in our community, 
visit us at parkcitykc.com or follow us on social media at parkcitykc.